COVID-19 and older people. A podcast from Queen's University Belfast. Welcome to this podcast exploring the impact of COVID-19 disease on older people. We are recording this virtually, so please forgive occasional noises. My name is Stuart Elborn. I'm Pro Vice Chancellor for Medicine, Health and Life Sciences in Queen's University, Belfast, and also a respiratory physician with research interests in lung infection, cystic fibrosis and bronchiectasis. The COVID-19 pandemic has raised many difficult new challenges for the world. In the United Kingdom and Ireland, this has been particularly hard on older people with particular issues in residential care and nursing homes. Today, we will discuss issues related to the health of elderly people in hospitals and care homes and explore some of the difficult issues associated with this and then confronting death for older people and their families and carers during this time. We appreciate that COVID-19 also affects vulnerable people uh, and indeed healthy individuals in a severe way. But in this podcast, we are focusing on the impact on older people. It's my pleasure now to introduce uh, three experts uh, from Queen's who will guide us through some of the challenging aspects of this discussion and provide useful insights, which I hope uh, will shed light on some of the difficult issues relating to COVID-19 in older people. Professor Carmel Hughes is a pharmacist and head of the School of Pharmacy at Queen's University. Her research has focused on the use of medicines in older people, particularly those living in care homes. She was formerly joint clinical lead for the Northern Ireland Clinical Research Network and was awarded a National Primary Care Career Scientist Award uh, from the Research and Development Division of the UK's Department of Health, the only pharmacist to have been so recognised. Dr Bernadette McGuinness is a clinical senior lecturer and consultant geriatrician uh, in the School of Medicine, Dentistry and Biomedical Sciences and the Belfast Health and Social Care Trust. Her research focuses on cognitive impairment and dementia and she recently uh, had a leading role in a groundbreaking uh, Alzheimer's disease trial uh, in patients in Northern Ireland. She is also clinical lead on the Nicholas study uh, which is an important longitudinal uh, cohort study of ageing in Northern Ireland. She has co-authored a range of scientific papers particularly focused uh, on Alzheimer's disease. Professor Heather Conway is Professor of Property Law and Death Studies in Queen's. Uh, Her most recent book, The Law and the Dead, was published in 2016. And uh, as the memorable title suggests, Uh, Her research focuses on the legal frameworks around death, burial and memorialisation. She also writes and researches uh, on property and succession law and most recently has contributed an article on the Queen's University COVID-19 webpage on how coronavirus uh, is changing funerals. So welcome to to my guests and I'm going to start off with uh, some questions uh, to Bernadette. The impact of COVID-19 has been most severely seen on older people during this pandemic. Could you tell us a little bit about why older people uh, and those with multimorbidity and frailty are particularly vulnerable and how that has impacted uh, on the older population? 
Um, thank you, Stuart. So there are several reasons why older people are more vulnerable to COVID-19 and you've touched upon a few of them there. The first reason really is multimorbidity. So we know from um, experience in China, etc., that people with underlying hypertension, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, etc., have a worse prognosis if they develop COVID-19. So we know that the prevalence of these conditions increases with age, and this means that older people are more vulnerable to more serious complications from COVID-19. We also know there's a higher prevalence of frailty in older people, and this means that older people um, are less resilient to the disease as they develop it. And because they're frail, they already have depleted reserves, so they're less able to mount an appropriate response to the disease. And the third reason really is the immune system. So as we all age, our immune system becomes less able to uh, cope with new challenges, such as a new condition, uh, such as COVID-19. And we see this every year during influenza outbreaks where um, older people are more vulnerable. And the same thing's really happening here with COVID-19. So these are the, the main reasons why older people are um, more badly affected if they develop the disease. Uh, and do all older people have uh, a severe uh, episode of COVID-19 when they become infected or do some older people cope with this okay? Is it is it a, a universal thing or is there differences uh, within individuals? That's a really interesting question and certainly from clinical experience we have seen that there's um, a very heterogeneous presentation in older people. So some older people in hospital appear to have um, been admitted with COVID-19 rather than from as a result of COVID-19. We've seen people who have had incidental falls, for example, and then when they're tested because maybe they've spiked a temperature or they've developed a cough, they've been found to be positive for COVID-19. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we've seen people who've been very severely affected from the disease. So they've been very short of breath, they've been very pyrexic, they've had lots of muscle aches and pains. So like um, the younger population, there does seem to be a variety in the way in which they present. And even if we extrapolate that further and look at the cases of people who have died, unfortunately, from COVID-19, we have seen people who have died from the disease, but also a, ver a large proportion of people who appear to have died with it. So they've died really from some underlying health problem and just appear to have been positive for COVID-19 as well. Thank you. That's really interesting. And for, for older people who do become uh, quite severely ill and, and are admitted to hospital and then decisions are being made about escalating care, uh, with either the non-invasive sort of ventilation or, or actually going to uh, an ICU to be ventilated with invasive ventilation. How are those decisions made in relation to older people and are they any different to, to the decision making in younger people? And again, that's very pertinent, that question. Certainly, when someone's admitted to hospital, there's an anticipatory care pathway put in place. So um, if we are able to, we will discuss the patient's wishes with them if, if they have capacity to do that at that time. Um, so we'll ask the patient where they would like to go should they deteriorate. Would they like to just remain on the ward? Would they like to have non-invasive ventilation on the ward if that was possible? Or what would their wishes about intensive care be? 
We also look at their clinical frailty scale, and this is according to the NICE guidelines. So this was developed by Rockwood et al. Et al and gives us an understanding of how frail a person is. And according to the NICE guidelines, if you score five or above, ICU may not be the best place for you. And this is really people with very mild frailty. Um, these are people who need help with more instrumental activities of daily living. So they're fairly independent, but maybe need help with uh, medications or paying bills, for example. So it's that level of frailty that we're, we think that will impact upon someone's ability to survive an ICU admission. On the whole, however, we don't just look at the clinical frailty scale, we look at each person as an individual and we aim to provide very holistic care for each person. And that's discussed among the multidisciplinary team. So we take the patient's wishes into account. We contact the family and as you know, we can't bring the family under the ward in most cases. So we will telephone the family, we'll take their wishes into account and um, we'll talk to the nurses and other doctors on the ward. The patient is then presented on the ward round and there's a respiratory consultant who leads the COVID wards and um, care plans are then put in place for the patient at that stage. And if they are for escalation to intensive care, then their case is discussed with the intensive care doctor as well. So there's very formalised process in place, but it is very individualised. And just because you score a certain scale on a frailty scale doesn't preclude that you won't be discussed, for example if it's felt appropriate by the team. Thank you. Heather, you, you have studied preparing for death, particularly getting your affairs in order. In these situations, which are often very stressful because they're happening quickly, what's your kind of comment on, on how perhaps older uh, individuals and their families uh, should be thinking about preparing for, which is very sadly the 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 uh, fact that 50% of people who go on ventilators uh, with COVID-19 don't survive. Absolutely, sure. I mean, a lot of my work has looked at, Bernadette has talked about anticipatory decision-making in, in the care setting. I would be a big advocate of anticipatory decision-making around planning for death and thinking about death and dying. Um, if we think about what's happening now, death is one of these big social taboos. We don't want to think about it. We certainly don't want to talk about it, but it surrounds us all every day. Now, with COVID-19, there are very stark daily reminders that death is the one fate that awaits every single one of us, that it's going to happen to all of us. And I think we need to have serious conversations about what we want to happen at the end of life. That may be care plans, that may be planning for the end. And I can certainly talk about that a little bit more later in the podcast. But I think having those conversations, thinking about it ourselves first and foremost, and having difficult conversations with our families, letting them know what we want to happen to us is vital because that can be a very good supportive mechanism for a family if the worst comes to pass. Thank you. Uh, it's, it is deeply distressing that, that, uh, that people do die and that that these are mostly older people, but older people also get better from COVID-19 and uh, the majority, in fact, uh, will will do that, uh, Bernadette. What happens when someone who's had COVID-19, particularly an older individual, uh, comes for discharge back to their home or perhaps back to a care home? H how do they start to rehabilitate and uh, what are the precautions they might need to take in those early phases uh, following the illness? 
On the wards, uh, we aim to provide rehabilitation in the first case. So um, like a, a normal pre-COVID-19 admission, um, the patient will be assessed by the multidisciplinary team and they'll have physiotherapists and an occupational therapist assigned to their care. And we do try our best within the confines of a bay, for example, in a ward to rehabilitate people back to their baseline. Um, that has challenges in itself due to isolation in a bay, for example. So we try to get people as strong as possible before discharge. If they are not quite ready for home, there is the um, there are facilities in the community now that are staffed by the allied health professionals that can uh, facilitate a step down or additional rehabilitation. And then at home, there is still there are still community physio available, for example. Um, so people, physios can attend someone's home, albeit with PPE in place. So the personal protective equipment that will be necessary to rehabilitate a person. They'll also be sent home with um, exercises to do because people who've had COVID-19 have they've usually lost weight, they've lost muscle mass, they may have become more frail as a result. So they really need to build their strength back up. And it's important that that rehabilitation process uh, continues to occur at home um, and doesn't just stop when they leave hospital. Thank you. And that takes us uh, really nicely to the next area that I want to explore with uh, Carmel, who has a long standing expertise in, in understanding how healthcare is delivered in nursing homes. Carmel, this has been a, a really difficult and in many cases painful issue over the pandemic. It's clear that there are a lot of uh, older people uh, dying in care homes and also in the community. And there's been big challenges in just uh, sorting out how to, to manage care homes with issues around testing and admission, discharge coming in and out of uh, care homes. What have been the main factors that have made this such a, a problem uh, in uh, care and residential accommodation? So I think going back to what Bernadette had talked about in terms of, of an older population and some of those really key characteristics around frailty and, and multimorbidities, I mean, I think they are brought to the fore in, in a nursing home population, which we know predominantly are over the age of 80. Um, they will have at least four, three or four medical conditions. They will be on multiple medications. So you do have that population that is is going to be prone to, to these types of infections. Um, I think the environment itself presents a very interesting um, dilemma for those who live in care homes and also for those who work in care homes as well. And I think the clue is in the name. This is a residence home. This is where they live. And I think many staff go to great lengths to try and make it a really homely environment that is a, a home-like place in which to live. But a situation like COVID, I think, has presented a real challenge in terms of also creating an environment that has to think about infection control. And therefore, the home, this care home environment is increasingly becoming, I think, more clinical in nature. And if you're dealing again with a population that is um, also characterised by high levels of dementia, this can be really quite a, a challenge, I think, both for the residents who live there and then also for the staff as well, as well who are trying to keep the residents as safe and secure as they possibly can 
while providing a homely environment, but, but also ensuring that infection, con infection control is maximised as far as possible. But I think what has been brought to the fore over the past number of weeks and which has been highlighted is that perhaps care homes are viewed a little bit differently from the rest of the health service. And they do sit somewhat, I think, on the periphery of the health service. Many homes are privately owned and therefore they're going to be responsible for resourcing, for example, PPE. And this has proved, I think, to be a real challenge for them. But increasingly, it's been recognised that PPE has to be provided. It is now being provided. Um, but I think it also needs to go beyond that. Um, and there was a piece published, in fact, in the New England Journal of Medicine just yesterday, highlighting the high mortality rate in uh, one particular care home in Washington State. And Washington State was the first area in the States where the first COVID cases were been picked up. And it was showing a mortality rate of somewhere in the region of about 30% in uh, care home residents. But what was particularly interesting about this paper was that the, the real problem was around asymptomatic residents. So there are residents who had um, uh, COVID-2, but were not really displaying typical symptoms or any symptoms at all. And it is thought that this was leading to transmission within the home and also to staff as well. So this particular paper was certainly advocating for PPE, but also advocating for testing as well. And again, I think increasingly we're going to see testing happening within care homes as part of a larger package of care um, to ensure that transmission is minimised as far as possible within the home, between residents and also between staff. Yes, and around that testing, there's been uh, some homes which have, have completely isolated themselves uh, and that's made it very challenging for staff and for the families of, of the, the folks who live in those, those uh, nursing homes with quite, uh, I think, distressing pictures of individuals talking through windows uh, or, or only being able to have contact through technology and through mobile phones and, and iPads. How, how sustainable do you think that is and, and how, how might that that be helped in terms of uh, supporting both the staff and the families? Yeah, I think staff really do deserve a huge amount of credit in terms of the lengths that they have gone to, in, to ensure that this has happened. And there are staff who are now literally living in the homes as well. So they're not going home. They themselves are staying in the home to maintain that lockdown as, as far as they possibly can. And Again, thinking about this particular population and trying to confine individuals into into bedrooms, um, many nursing homes will have single rooms for their their residents, but there will still be some nursing homes, care homes that perhaps have shared accommodation for residents. So that is a challenge in itself. Um, staff uh, remaining on site as far as they possibly can. Uh, in many cases, what the homes are doing is operating a rota system whereby they will stay in a home for a week, they'll leave, and then other members of staff will come in and take over. But and so you you are getting a turnover to some extent, but again, ensuring that infection control and testing continues. Um, but a document came out from the Department of Health just over the weekend, um, outlining a number of different strategies that should be employed. And increasingly now the health service is being seen as part of the solution to helping the situation within care homes. Um, and at this stage, they're asking for volunteers from the, the nursing sector within the NHS to also contribute to the care of residents within care homes, provided that they undergo the necessary training. But it is voluntary at this stage. Um, so I think that 
possibly does call into question just how sustainable this type of, of arrangement is going to be. Staff themselves obviously are going to have family commitments uh, and how long they can continue to, to stay within a home, albeit that they, they are uh, released every so often. It is a really problematic area, uh, but I think staff are doing the very best that they can under very difficult circumstances. Thank you. Uh, Bernadette, uh, community geriatricians and general practitioners have a, a really important role in, in supporting uh, the uh, health care for older people in nursing homes. Uh, what's been the experience so far of, of how that part of the connection between care homes and the health service is working? Yeah, thanks, George. There's certainly been um, upskilling of GPs in the community and our community geriatrician colleagues have certainly seen their caseload increase by more than 50% over the past few months due to COVID-19. So GPs have really um, stepped up to the plate here according to colleagues of ours and have really helped. Um, they're now prescribing fluids to patients, IV fluids, subcutaneous fluids, IV antibiotics and we know that oxygen concentrators are being brought into various care homes in Northern Ireland as well and this will help um, keep people who want to stay in care homes um, there. Um, lots of people have been successfully treated and have come through the illness through this means and then there's another cohort of people who have unfortunately died from COVID-19 in their care home. But this has been at their wish um, and I think it's important that we're able to take people's wishes um, on board at this time. Lots of people don't want to go to hospital. Um, it can be a very distressing experience towards the end of your life. And the fact that we have community geriatricians and GPs in place who can facilitate people dying in their care home if that's their wish is really important. And I think we also have to think about the um, the care home assistants and the nursing staff who've really done a phenomenal job as well and are doing a phenomenal job. If you think about care home assistants, they've never really been trained in taking um, observations from patients, but they're now being trained in soft signs, for example. And this is where a patient is perhaps deteriorating. And because they know that patient so well, they can tell that they're just maybe a little bit more confused than normal, a bit quieter than normal. And that can alert them then to um, let a nurse or a GP know that a, one of their clients is unwell. And that can lead on then to um, a more formal assessment of their health. And nurses as well who are in nursing homes have also upskilled in their observational skills. And they're using news charts, for example, that we would normally use in hospital in care homes now. So everyone has really um, pulled together and I think providing the best care possible for residents in care homes across Northern Ireland. Thank you. Heather, this, this further um, just highlights the, the importance of anticipatory care. As, as you've said earlier, for, for all of us, we should be confronting the issue that we, we all are mortal. Uh, and th this, is, this is not easy to do uh, in a care home that's shut down and where communication is difficult. What, what's your uh, take on, on how to uh, approach this uh, in, a, in a situation where there's some distress, maybe some challenges with cognitive understanding? Uh, does that make it more difficult to do this planning? And perhaps it emphasises that we should be doing this well ahead of time rather than right in the jaws of the events, uh, perhaps leading up to death? Absolutely, Stuart. I, I think we should all 
And again, this I, I need to stress, this is not something that I would just recommend for people who are um, older, for people who are residing in care homes. I think this is something that we should all be thinking about. We should all, for want of a better expression, die tidily, die with our affairs in order, die knowing what we want to happen to us, to our possessions to our worldly goods and make sure that we know what our family wants. One big example that we've seen under the COVID-19 pandemic, it has prompted a huge increase in will making. A lot of people now are contemplating death and thinking, well, have I made a will? Is it up to date? Do I need to revise it? Do I need to change it? When you have older people in care homes, that creates obvious logistical issues. And there are always going to be issues around capacity. For example, that's always going to be a big one with an older population. There are going to be issues as well as to whether or not the person's being put under pressure, pressurized into changing their will or making a drastic revision. Those are issues that we face all the time. Solicitors that I've spoken to recently have flagged the very tight restrictions on getting into care homes these days. Most of them are on lockdown now to protect patient safety. So if you are in a care home and you're an older person and you're thinking, I want to update my will, I want to change something, of course you can still access your solicitor. You can have a discussion about what you want, but in terms of a solicitor visiting a care home and taking instructions, that's not possible anymore. So we've talked about the use of technology and how things are adapting. The legal profession is adapting to that as well. I spoke to Sarah Patterson, who works in McLean's firm in Belfast yesterday, and she said to me, some solicitors are now taking instructions using Skype, using FaceTime. There's a way of speaking to people. It's more difficult to assess things like capacity using those electronic means, but taking your client's instructions, it is possible. Then you can draft a will, you can send it to the person in question. If they're in a care home, you send very, very detailed instructions about how the will has got to be signed, how it's got to be witnessed. The law places very, very strict rules around how you execute and draft wills, so solicitors are improvising. They're making sure that they comply with their professional responsibilities, but they're trying to attend to their clients' needs and making sure the clients can execute their wills, can have this last expression, can be content that if the worst comes to pass, they have a will in place that reflects their wishes about what they want to happen. And part of that as well, I think there is an obligation to discuss these sorts of things with our families. We may not like to have the conversations, but I think it can bring a huge sense of comfort to a family to know that a family member has died and left their affairs in order, has died tidily and tells them, look, this is where I've drafted this will, this is where the documentation is, this is what you need to access and look at if the worst comes to pass. And that's just one example of it. Thank you, Ian. I think that's really helpful advice that uh, we all need to, to, to challenge ourselves about these, these issues around our deaths, uh, but that the, the legal profession is, is working well with uh, care homes and hospitals to, to ensure that uh, even in, in situations where there's not a lot of time uh, that we can still do this. Uh, funerals are another uh, quite distressing part of the consequences of lockdown. Uh, the uh, regulations around number of people, physical distancing, closed coffins have brought a lot of distress, uh, I think also to families in the, and friends in the grieving process. What What's your kind of understanding and, and how, how can people uh, engage 
in a way that helps them go through the important uh, bereavement process that a funeral is a key part of? I think that this is one of the very, very tragic aspects of the COVID-19 outbreak. Coronavirus has changed funerals beyond all recognition in the space of a very short few weeks. People who have lost loved ones now are having to contend not just with the additional trauma that comes with losing a loved one, perhaps losing them in a hospital or a care home setting where they weren't able to visit them or to be with them in a physical sense whenever they died. They're also having to deal with the fact that under the emergency legislation that has come in in the back of coronavirus, we now have very, very strict regulations around funerals. And that is a huge social change for us to accept. And people who have lost loved ones now have to accept that they cannot give them the proverbial proper send off that we all take so much comfort on. When we think about funerals, Funerals are a hugely important social ritual. We come together as a family, we come together as a friendship group to celebrate the life, to mark someone's passing, to mourn the loss. And we derive a lot of comfort from having other family members there, having members of society there, members of our community who come along to pay their respects. All that is gone now. Funerals can still take place. The emergency legislation made that very, very clear. There are strict social distancing measures in place now. Those have to be implemented at all funerals. Funerals are limited to immediate family members. Now, there's no legal definition of what an immediate family member is. Now, I think that's very sensible. Families are very, very different. They take all sorts of different shapes and forms. So there's a certain element of discretion in there as to who a family member is. And we can all decide that for individual funerals. There's no strict numbers limit on most funerals. We try to keep the numbers as small as possible for obvious reasons to curb the transmission of the disease, not just amongst those who are mourning the loss of a loved one, but amongst those who work in the death care industry and who are also playing a vital role, our cemetery managers, our crematorium managers, funeral directors. We have to minimise the risk of transmission there. But certainly under the social distancing requirements, the different rules around funerals, that's proving very, very challenging for bereaved families to come to terms with. And again, this is another area in which we see a lot of technology coming in now. If possible, there's live streaming of funerals to allow remote participation, to allow people to be present in some sort of sense, even though they're not physically there. But certainly a lot of literature suggests that this is going to be a very, very challenging time for funerals. And we've seen examples of it in the media already. We've seen a lot of reports about the trauma sense of sheer grief that's being produced whenever people are having to have these very, very restrictive funerals. And that just doesn't apply to COVID-19 deaths. That's applying to all funerals these days. Uh, thank you, Heather. Uh, really, just to, to, to kind of wrap up uh, over the next few minutes, uh, I'd just like to explore a little bit around how important it is that uh, we maintain our, our respect and our value of older people in society. I think the uh, this pandemic, because it's uh, disproportionately affected older people, uh, has really brought into focus how important it is that we uh, provide the best care possible uh, to older people, particularly those with uh, frailty and multimorbidity. And in, in some ways, our, our, our older generation in 
particularly, as Carmel said, that care homes were a little bit disjoined from the healthcare system. It really emphasises how important that we see our whole uh, society as one and that, that older people are an important part of that. Car- Carmel, have you any, any comments just on, on how, how COVID might be important in terms of, of really recalibrating uh, that aspect of societal uh, respect? Yeah, I was really struck by what Bernadette said uh, when she talked about the level of, of support that is being provided from primary care and elsewhere for, for those who are within care home. And it just made me wonder, is this a moment in time when we will begin to reevaluate how older people are viewed, how those in care homes who are viewed? Because I, I've often thought that perhaps care home care has been seen somewhat as a Cinderella of, of health care generally. And is this an opportunity for us to begin to think about things very, very differently? So I also think that it's an opportunity for us to think quite differently as well about individuals who are working within care homes and particularly the care assistants who provide the day to day hands on care. And I would really emphasize the hands on care. Um, and who create as far as possible this homely environment that I have have described. And there's been a lot of um, commentary over the past number of weeks about who we value and what we value and the fact that people stand on their doorsteps on a Thursday evening and they clap for carers. And a term that I heard used over the weekend, which really struck me, was about redistribution of esteem and the fact that we now are esteeming those individuals who are opening supermarkets, who are providing this care um, at, at potential harm to themselves. So I think it is a moment in time when society perhaps has an opportunity to, to take stock, not just in terms of how we view older people, but how we view other individuals who are providing the absolutely essential services that is keeping society going at, at the moment. Thank you. Bernadette, any any final comments around that? Um, yeah, well, I would agree with everything Carmel says. I suppose I'd also like to add, as a geriatrician, I've always, always valued older people. I've always really enjoyed looking after them. I've enjoyed listening to their life experiences and gaining from their knowledge. I think um, the Irish Longitudinal Study of Aging, TILDA, recently um, published an infographic of how valuable older people in Irish society are. And this was in response to the media reporting deaths from COVID-19 as, oh, this person was elderly and had an underlying health condition, which was very negative. And they showed that older people in Irish society actually um, a high proportion of them carry out uh, volunteering in the community and um, there's a very high proportion of them look after grandchildren and uh, lots of them also have paid employment in other um, parts of uh, work you know other than their vocation originally would have been so I thought that was a really interesting almost kickback to the media and um, you know we, we need to value older people in our society they're a really important part of our society and hopefully, as a result of COVID-19, the balance will have shifted and will have been reset. Thank you. That's, re- that's a really interesting little group of data around how, how older people really do contribute to, to, the, to a wider ecosystem in society and in supporting their peers, their families, etc. Uh, Heather, any, any final comments uh, from you around that uh, recalibration of, of how we perceive older people? 
I think both Carmel and Bernadette have summed it up perfectly. Just to echo their views in terms of treating older people in a respectful and dignified manner, recognizing their contribution. I suppose the one thing that I would add is that not to shy away from having these difficult conversations around what we want, making sure that, that their voice is heard, making sure that their wishes are known and making sure that those wishes are ultimately communicated and respected. Uh, fantastic. Thank you very much to our experts, uh, uh, Carmel Hughes, Bernadette McGuinness and Heather Conway. This has been a, a very uh, challenging and uh, I hope enlightening conversation, but I think we've finished with a real sense of how important it is for us as a society to respect and provide the level of care for older people uh, that they deserve so that they have as, they have every chance uh, of uh, coming through perhaps an episode of COVID-19 and recovering and continuing then uh, to contribute to our society. So thank you all very much. Uh, I'd like to thank Morris McCartney, our producer, uh, for doing this podcast with us under the challenging circumstances of uh, using uh, remote recording. And thank you very much uh, for listening to this. And I hope uh, you find it both thought provoking and helpful. For more on this and related subjects, visit our webpage, qub.ac.uk slash coronavirus. Mm-hmm.